I'm Stuart Brand. This seminar about long-term thinking is brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. If you would like to see high-quality videos of the talks in the series, including this one, they are available online for Long Now members at longnow.org. It's a great honor to be here. And watching that uh, film, I have to say, Stuart, that uh, as impressive as it was that you took to, uh, pulled off this seven-day hunger strike, doing it with the munchies is really impressive. I don't know why. <laughs> um, uh, my name is Phil Longman, and uh, like most of you in this room, I'm a baby boomer. Um, I think uh, after having watched this film, it's singularly appropriate to get into the subject by talking a bit about generational experience, particularly that of the baby boom generation. Um, what does it mean to be a baby boomer? Well, among other things, it means to have lived through a world historical and unprecedented explosion in world population. I mean, just in my lifetime, world population has more than doubled. Um, just since I was in my 30s, we've added another billion people to the planet. And today, as you can see, world population growth is still quite explosive. We're adding 74 million people a year to the planet. That's the equivalent of a whole new Egypt every year. And in just the time it took me to say that last sentence, world population grew by about 20 people. For most of us, this phenomenon of rapid population growth deeply informs our world views. After all, baby boomers and younger Americans came of age when there were basically two competing visions about how the world was going to end. The first vision was of this, and the second version was of a different population bomb, or a different kind of bomb, called the population bomb. And people around the world learned about it when local author author Paul Ehrlich wrote his best-selling book, The Population Bomb. Now, it's almost impossible to overstate how deeply fears of population growth inform our culture across the political divide. For instance, here's Robert McNamara, the man who brought you the Vietnam War, and the man who uh, for many years ran the World Bank, um, trying to figure out which is worse, the population bomb or the thermonuclear war scenario, and you can see him here concluding that really, at the end of the day, the population bomb is probably more of a threat. Today, in our, both in our day-to-day -day experiences, particularly here in California, or Crowdifornia, as I know some people call it, and from the impressions that we gather from the media, they repeatedly suggest that whatever quality of life uh, we enjoy is perpetually uh, threatened by population growth. And traffic gets worse every year. We've got more and more sprawl. You turn on your television, you're likely to see a feature on disappearing farmlands in the Middle West or stone-throwing youths in the Middle East. We're constantly hearing of disappearing rainforests, out-of-control borders, vanishing species. And given all this, it's hardly a wonder that the majority of Americans, when surveyed, say that they believe world population will double again in 20 years. Indeed, fear of population growth informs nearly all the major cultural changes that have been building in the, in the United States since the 1960s. It's no coincidence that the first Earth Day took place in 1970, just as the rate of world population growth was reaching an all-time high. 
Nor is it surprising that just as the huge baby boom generation came of age, social attitudes that had long served to keep birth rates high began to change, including attitudes towards birth control, abortion, feminism, and homosexuality. In another way, assumptions that population will always grow is essential to many conservative agendas. Businesses flock to areas where population is growing, such as the Sun Belt, and flee areas where it's dwindling, such as the Great Plains of the United States. And this, too, is not a coincidence. Population growth is good for capitalism. In fact, it may be essential to capitalism. After all, population growth creates more of the demand, more demand for the products that capitalists sell and more supply of the labor they buy. But now here's a curious fact, one of many I hope to be sharing with you today. World population is still growing, but it's doing so at a slower and slower pace every year. Indeed, the rate of population growth today is only about half what it was when Stuart was out starving himself. Demographers everywhere see this trend continuing, even to the point of depopulation. Indeed, forecasts by the United Nations and others show that world population, which is currently a little over 6 billion, is unlikely to double ever. Instead, most, most demographers believe that human population will peak somewhere between 7 and 9 billion within the lifetimes of people in this room and then start shrinking. Here, for example, is a recent projection from the United Nations for world population. It's based on assumptions about the course of future fertility rates that are entirely consistent with current experience. Indeed, if anything, this projection may well understate the timing and speed of world population decline. It assumes, for example, that world fertility rates will stabilize at 1.85 children per woman, which is well above the fertility rate we've already seen today in the developed world. Here's the outlook for the United States, again from the United Nations. As you can see, U.S. population starts shrinking after mid-century, and by 2300 has slipped back to the population levels we saw in 1950. Again, the decline here could be much sharper because these projections assume that U.S. fertility rates will remain above the levels already seen in Europe and other developed countries. Now, should we hope that all this comes true? I'm sure that many people in this room and many people around the world uh, welcome the prospect of slower population growth. It would seem to lead to less traffic, more room at the beach, less conflict over natural resources, scarce jobs, etc. But what I hope to persuade you of tonight is that people who yearn for a less crowded world should be careful what they wish for. I will argue that the transition to a slow-growing uh, slow and eventually declining world population could bring many deep and challenging problems Indeed, problems that could lead to a new dark ages. I will argue that the slowdown in population growth inevitably entails rapid population aging, not just in developing countries, but in the third world, most notably in China, the Middle East, and other developing regions. An explosion of the world's elderly population, coupled with a dwindling supply of children and younger workers, threatens not only the global economy, but I would argue the global environment. 
Finally, and most controversially, I will argue that unless secular societies take measures to increase the rewards to parenthood and to better compensate those who are involved in nurturing and educating the next generation, we, and I mean here the whole planet, face a future dominated by fundamentalism. But before we examine how all that might happen, let's dwell for a bit about why demographers now believe that the era of population growth is coming to an end. Already, population is falling in many nations. Russia's population is falling by about three-quarters of a million people a year. And Germany is, faces the prospect of losing the equivalent of the entire population of East Germany over the next 50 years. Japan's population is expected to fall by a third, which is equivalent to the loss of population Europe experienced after the Great Plague. And the reasons for this are straightforward. In industrialized nations, the average woman must bear 2.1 children to sustain population. She must bear one child to replace herself, one child to replace her partner, and one-tenth of a child to make up for the children who fail to survive to reproductive age. In no industrialized nation today is fertility high enough to prevent declining populations. In countries as diverse as Italy, Japan, Spain, and Korea, fertility rates are now so low that these countries are on a course to lose 30 to 50% of their population per generation. Yet what is even more surprising is the rapid decline in fertility now seen in the developing world. The, the phenomenon of sub-replacement fertility has now spread to every corner and continent of the globe. Here we see marked in red the countries in the world where population or fertility is below 2.1 children per woman. If we were to account for the high rates of AIDS and infant mortality found in much of sub-Saharan Africa, we would have to color that part of the, of the uh, region of the world at sub-replacement as well. In both hemispheres now, in nations rich and poor, under all forms of government, in Christian, Taoist, Hindu, and especially Islamic nations, there's one phenomenon that holds constant. Birth rates are plummeting. Half the world's population now lives in countries or territories where fertility is insufficient to replace population. Apart from Mongolia, all of East Asia now is at below replacement level. And many Caribbean societies and South American countries no longer produce enough children to maintain population. Now where's fertility falling the fastest? Precisely where most people think it's growing the most. Here, for example, is a chart showing Algeria's birth dearth. As recently as the 1970s, the average woman in Algeria had eight children in her lifetime. Today, she has less than two. Same story in Lebanon. The Lebanese actually produced more children in the midst of their prolonged civil war than they do today. And perhaps most surprisingly, same story in Iran. Consider, under the grip of an Islamic militant clerisy, Iran has a current fertility rate of 1.9, which is less than that of the United States. Now, how can this be? Anyone who travels in the Middle East cannot help but see throngs of young people leaning against walls, 
They're so ubiquitous, there's even a new North African slang term for these folks called Hittite, a uh, play on the Arabic word for a wall. But what you need to know is that these Hittite are members of a distinct and aging baby boom generation. They are children of the 1980s, whose large numbers derive not from an increase in fertility, but from a dramatic decline in infant mortality that cannot be replicated in the future. Much like when the American baby boom generation was still in its youth, their large numbers are shaking every institution of society. But also like the baby boomers in the United States, they are followed by a baby bust generation. In demographic terms then, the Middle East is following much the same course that Europe and the United States did in the 60s and 70s, only on a much more dramatic and fast scale. Now what explains the worldwide decline in fertility? There are many factors, some of which I show here. It is easy to explain why children have become scarce in developed countries. In today's advanced economies, many people are not even done with school, much less established in a career before their own fertility begins to decline or their partner's does. Then there's the rising cost of children. The federal government estimates that the cost of raising a child born this year in middle-class circumstances through age 18 comes to $200,000, not including the cost of college. If one considers the opportunity costs of one or both, one uh, a mother or a father uh, staying home to stay with a child, um, or in the cost of, of uh, foregone wages and compromised careers, for many families the opportunity cost of raising a child is measured in the millions. Meanwhile, although social security systems around the globe and private pension plans depend critically on the human capital created by parents. They offer the same pension benefits and often more to those who avoid the burdens of raising a family. Now the developing world has experienced the same demographic transition only on a much faster scale. With the rapid growth of megacities around the third world, half the world's population now lives in urban areas where children are no longer an asset to their parents but an economic liability. And like their counterparts in the industrial world, women in the third world increasingly take jobs, if only in sweatshops, and so they too lose income when they bear children. What also seems to have a dramatic effect is the availability of television. Remember this guy? Well, it turns out the American baby boom ended the year that he came on the air. <laughs> and that's uh, a little bit of a joke, but there's a, something serious to it. Demographers today are now paying a lot of attention to the role of television in affecting fertility around the world. And here's an example of why the case is so compelling. Since 1975, Brazil's birth rate has basically fallen in half and is now way below replacement levels. This is not the result of any family planning program because the country never adopted one. Instead, studies show that birth rates declined from province to province coincidental with the introduction of television. Today, the number of hours a Brazilian woman spends watching television strongly predicts how many children she will have. What's on Brazilian television? <laughs> uh, they're mostly domestically produced soap operas called telenovelas. Now, these soaps rarely address reproductive issues directly. Instead, they typically depict wealthy individuals living in the high life, living the high life in the big cities. The men are dashing, lustful, power-hungry, and unattached. 
The women are lissome, manipulative, independent, and in control of their own bodies. The few who have young children delegate their care to nannies. The telenovelas thus enforce a cultural message that's conveyed as well by many North American and European cultural exports, which is that people of wealth and sophistication are people who have, at most, one or two children. How much television affects birth rates through such messages, and how much it does so simply by changing how men and women spend their bedtime hours, we can only speculate. But this much is sure. There is nothing on the horizon to suggest that the decline in world population is going to turn around anytime soon. Indeed, in many developed nations, we have now developed negative population momentum. That is, the supply of women of childbearing age has already shrunk so low that even if fertility increases substantially, population may still well fall. Italy is a good example. Today, the number of women of childbearing age in Italy is half what it was in the 1960s. Now, is this a good thing? History shows that when people in a country start to have fewer children, it often does bring economic benefits, at least at first. Many economists believe, for example, that falling birth rates helped make possible the economic boom that occurred in Japan and in the other Asian tigers in the 1960s and 70s. As the relative number of children declined, so did the burden of their dependency. Meanwhile, as we can see from this slide, a larger and larger share of the population was in its prime productive years, in contrast to Africa, where the working age population was shrinking in relative size during this period. Notice that Japan's long recession began just as continuously falling fertility rates at last caused its working age population to begin falling. In the 1990s, the middle aging of the baby boom generation uh, probably contributed to the prosperous uh, economic era. Today, China's rapid industrialization is also aided by the dramatic decline in the proportion of dependent children in the population. Over the next decade, the Middle East could benefit from a similar demographic dividend. In every single country of the Middle East in the 1990s, fertility rates fell, often dramatically. The resulting middle aging of the Middle East could well ease the overall dependency ratio over the next 20 years, bring up many new resources for infrastructure and industrial development, all else being equal. With young adults accounting for a declining share of the population, the appeal of radicalism may diminish. As middle-aged people concerned with such practical issues as health care and retirement savings increasingly dominate Middle Eastern societies. Just as population aging in the U.S. during the 1980s was accompanied by the, a decline in the weather underground, the Red Brigades, the Red Army Faction, other violent elements, uh, the Middle East could also, uh, middle aging of the Middle East could also produce societies less prone to political violence. Yet even if declining fertility rates bring a demographic dividend, that dividend eventually has to repay, be repaid if the trend continues. At first, there are fewer children to feed, clothe, and educate, leaving more for adults to enjoy. But soon enough, there are fewer productive workers as well, while there are also more and more dependent elderly. This is based on a UN projection I showed you before. Today, the world's dependent population, comprising children and the elderly, is 33% smaller than the working age population. But you can see that by 2100, there'll be as many dependents 
as there are productive citizens on current trends. And by 2300, there'll be 23% more dependents than there are producers. Now, this is an important point, but it's actually worse than it might seem. Population is aging, or population aging is very expensive as it goes along, not only because of the increasing dependency ratio, but in the difference of cost between children and the elderly. In 2000, for example, persons over 65 received seven times more in federal spending than did children under the age of 18. And this was before the enactment of the costly Medicare prescription drug benefit. So what happens when there are fewer children but many more elders? Yes, we may spend less on education, but we will have to spend dramatically more on health care and pensions. At all levels of government, including locally financed public schools, the elderly take about three times per person what, the ch what children do. The cost of health care for the elderly is by far the greatest danger to, to an aging society. Consumption of health care advances steadily with age. Moreover, because medicine does not cure aging, but only ameliorates or puts off some of its symptoms, its applications leave more and more of the elderly population with long-term chronic conditions like Alzheimer's, which in turn leads to more demand for health care. Then there is the tendency of aging societies to constantly expand the definition of health so that conditions that were once seen as normal effects of aging are recategorized as diseases requiring medical intervention and costly health care insurance. Call it the Viagra effect. Even in the United States, which has comparatively high fertility, population aging causes debilitating liabilities. Population aging may mellow the tone of a society, but it also eventually places huge strains on national budgets, while leaving fewer resources available for other purposes, including industrial development and environmental remediation. Population aging is what drives budget projections like this, recently issued by the Government Accounting Office. It shows compounding deficits for as far as the eye can see, mostly caused by compounding cost of retirement benefits for aging baby boomers like myself. As populations age, there are fewer workers to support each retiree. That has consequences even for the environment. Aging societies will need more and more output per worker and fast-growing economies to pay their mounting obligations. That means more intensive use of energy and natural resources than would otherwise be necessary. And it may mean the adoption of dangerous technologies as aging societies desperately try to make up for shrinking overtaxed workforces. Now, how exactly does population aging work, and what does it have to do with fertility? It does sound a bit paradoxical, but start by dwelling on this fact. The world still does face substantial population increase, but not because of any increase in the number of children. Indeed, by 2050, there'll be 35 million fewer children in the world than there are today but 1.2 billion more elders. That's where the population growth of the future is coming from. Now let's take a closer look at how this works, this time using the example of Mexico. Today when Mex Americans think of Mexico, they think of televised images of desperate unemployed youth swimming the Rio Grande or slipping through border fences. Yet the fall of Mexican fertility has been so dramatic that the country is now aging at roughly four times the rate of the United States 
and is uh, destined to wind up being an older country by mid-century. Now here's what that process looks like. This is Mexico in 1980. On the left we have males, on the right females. The younger members of society are at the bottom, the older at the top. This is the classic age pyramid. Basically any population in human history would look something like this if you scaled it for its age structure. Now look what happens as Mexico's fertility begins to decline. We see in the course of 70 years, Mexico goes from having a population structure that looks something like a triangle to something that looks more like a rectangle with huge concentrations of people at older ages. Specifically, in 1980, only about one out of 20 people in Mexico was over 60. 45 years from now, one out of four Mexicans will be that old. Meanwhile, children under 15 will account for just 17% of the population by mid-century, down from 42% in the 1980s. There will be more elders than children in Mexico. Perhaps more startling, the absolute number of children in Mexico is already falling. By mid-century on current trends, there will be nearly 7 million fewer children in Mexico than there were in 1980. And in just 10 years from now, the supply of young adults in Mexico will also begin to fall. By mid-century, half of Mexico's population will be over age 42, giving it a higher median age than what's expected for the United States. Now, what are the implications of that trend? For the United States, it may well mean an end to immigration from Mexico. If that seems overstated, consider the example of Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico has a sub-replacement fertility rate and a median age of about 31. And today, there's no net immigration from Puerto Rico to the mainland. For Mexico itself, the transition to a lower fertility may well bring an initial demographic dividend, as it has elsewhere. But Mexico will bear a burden for supporting the elderly that it may well not be able to bear. After all, countries like France and Germany got a chance to get rich before they got old. Mexico, as well as India, China, and many other developing nations, are growing old before they get rich. Now, I dwell in Mexico only because it's nearby and important to us, but not because it's the worst case. Take a look here at the age structure of China in 2050. By mid-century, nearly one out of three people in China will be over 60, compared to only 10% today. By 2020, its working age population will be in absolute decline. Between 2030 and 2050, the total population will shrink by more than 50 million. Adding to China's falling fertility is a radical imbalance between the sexes due to selective abortion of females. Today in China, there are nearly 120 boys for every 100 girls, and the trend is getting worse. Similar unnatural gender imbalances exist in South Korea, Taiwan, Hong Kong, Singapore, and much of India, um, presumably as the result of ultrasound. Fertil Brazil's fertility collapse is also causing rapid population aging. The last time both, most Americans bothered to look, Brazil was a youthful country, the country that invented the bikini. 
and its most pressing social problem seemed to be a growing army of glue-sniffing street urchins. But a report by the Ministry of Social Security recently concluded, quote, we may be faced in the coming years with the problem of street elders without having solved the problem of street children. Even Egypt is going gray. In Egypt, the population of small children will begin falling within 10 years, given current fertility trends. By mid-century, there will be roughly 100,000 fewer children under five than there are today, but the population of seniors will have grown by 18.5 million. Now, a lot of people, when they hear these aging trends, say, there's no problem. People will just work longer. And indeed, they will. But I think it's too facile to simply dismiss these aging trends with that thought. Yes, the average age of retirement will go up, as it already is slightly in the United States. But in many countries where manual labor is the norm, people are worn out by the time they're 60. And in affluent countries like the U.S., current declines in the general fitness of the population imply a very large percentage of the next generation of elders is going to be beset by chronic disabilities. The pandemic of obesity in the U.S. and Europe, as well as the spread of sedentary lifestyles, threatens to create a new generation of elders that will be more prone to chronic disease and disability and more costly to support. As recently as 1991, there wasn't a single state in which 20% of the population was overweight. Today there are 32. Disability rates are already rising among the middle-aged and young, and gains in life expectancy have disappeared among the elderly, presumably as a result of the lethal American lifestyle. Researchers estimate that obesity alone will cause a 10 to 20% increase in the demand for nursing homes over what otherwise would be just from population aging, and a 10 to 15% increase in the cost of Medicare. Now this dynamic suggests one of the many ways in which population aging may become a vicious cycle. As the cost of, support, of supporting the elderly has risen, governments have already been compelled to raise taxes on younger workers and will be compelled to do much more so in the future. Younger workers, in turn, find that not only does the economy require them to have ever higher levels of education, but their aging society requires them to pay ever higher taxes. And they respond by feeling that they are less able to afford children thereby inspiring a new cycle of population aging. So where will the children of the future come from? <laughs> Some biologists speculate that modern human beings have created an environment in which the fittest or most successful individuals are precisely those who have few, if any, offspring. As more and more humans find themselves living in urban conditions in which children have become costly impediments to material success, those who are well adapted to this new environment will tend not to reproduce themselves, and others who are not so successful will imitate them. But this hardly implies extinction. Some people will still have children. They just won't tend to be people highly motivated by material concerns or secular values. Disproportionately, the parents of the future will be people who are at odds with the modern environment, people who either don't get the new rules of the economic game that make large families a liability, or who out of religious or chauvinistic conviction reject the game altogether. In other words, people like Mormons. In Utah, 
where 69% of all residents are registered members of the Church of Latter-day Saints, fertility rates are the highest in the nation. Utah annually produces 90 children per 1,000 women of childbearing age. By contrast, Vermont, the only state to send a socialist to Congress and the first to embrace gay unions, produces only 49. There is then a strong relationship between religious conviction and fertility. In the U.S., for example, fully 47% of people who attend church weekly say their ideal family size is three or more kids. By contrast, only 27% of those who seldom attend church say they want that many children. And how do you suppose the blue zone states compared with the red zone states in their fertility? In states that voted for God-fearing, born-again George W. Bush, fertility is 9% higher than states that voted for secular technocratic Al Gore. So does the future belong to those who believe that they are commanded by a higher power to procreate? On current trends, the answer appears to be yes. Once demographers believed that there was some law of human nature that would prevent fertility rates from remaining below replacement rates in any healthy population for more than brief periods. So we have one baby here anyway. <laughs> I mean, after all, don't we all carry the genes of our Neolithic ancestors who one way or another succeeded in sustaining the race? Yet just today we can see clearly that there is no law of human nature that ensures that human beings living in free and developed economies will create enough children to reproduce themselves. Japanese fertility rates have been below replacement levels since the mid-1950s, and the last time Europeans had enough children to reproduce themselves was the mid-1970s. Current demographic trends work against modernity in another way as well. Not only is the spread of urbanization and industrialization a major cause of falling fertility, it's a major cause of so-called diseases of affluence, such as overeating, lack of exercise, and substance abuse which leave an ever higher proportion of the population stricken by chronic conditions. Thus, those who reject modernity would seem to have an evolutionary advantage, whether they are clean-living Mormons or Muslims, who remain committed to comparatively large families, or members of emerging sects and national movements that combine pronatalism with anti-materialism. So how can secular societies avoid population loss and decline? The problem is not that women have become too busy, self-absorbed, and self-important to want kids. Instead, surveys show that American and European women now in their 40s intended to produce far more children than they did. Indeed, as we can see from this chart, if women in most European countries had produced their ideal family size, the continent would face no prospect of population loss. Today in the United States, only 4% of, of adults say they will be satisfied if they never have children, according to a recent Gallup poll. And among those who have reached middle age without having produced children, the vast majority express regret. So there is a latent demand for children that's not being met. Why? The problem is that even in, as modern societies demand more and more investment in human capital, this demand threatens its own supply. The clear tendency of economic development is towards more knowledge-based, networked economies in which decision-making and responsibilities are increasingly necessary at lower levels. 
So, children often remain economically dependent on their parents well into their own childbearing years because it takes that long to acquire the panoply of technical skills, credentials, social understanding, and personal maturity that more and more jobs now require. For the same reason that we see the the boomerang kid phenomenon, many couples discover that by the time they feel they can afford children, they can no longer produce them or must settle for one or two. Meanwhile, even as aging societies become increasingly dependent on the human capital that parents provide, parents themselves get to keep less and less of the wealth they create by investing in their children. Employers make use of the human capital parents endow in their children, but offer parents no compensation. Governments also depend on parental investment to produce the next generation of taxpayers, but with rare exceptions, give parents no greater benefits in old age than non-parents. So what can be done? At a minimum, secular societies need to rethink how they go about educating young adults and integrating them into the workforce so that tensions between work and family are reduced. Education should be a lifetime pursuit and not crammed into one's prime reproductive years. There should be many more opportunities for part-time and flex-time employment, and such work should offer meaningful pension benefits and career paths. Governments should also, I believe, relieve parents of having to pay into social security systems. And here's why. By raising and educating their children, Parents have already contributed hugely to these systems by providing essential human capital. Requiring parents to contribute payroll taxes as well is not only unfair, but also imprudent in societies that are consuming more human capital than they produce. In the long run, though, nothing may reverse falling fertility so long as the family continues to lose its economic basis. Put alternatively, those cultures that succeed in avoiding population loss will be those that once again organize their economies around family enterprise in which all generations play a productive role and have an economic incentive to invest in one another. One vision, not too optimistic, of such a future might look like this. A future once again organized around household production and kinship networks. Grandparents look out for the young until the young are old enough to look out for them while the middle generation heads the family enterprise as best it can. Unable to meet its pension and health care liabilities, the state withers away, and so does the formal economy. People have children because there is no one else who's going to look after them when they turn old, and because in the new, more primitive economic order, children once again play a useful role while still young. Such a future may have many high-tech features, Just as women were once paid by the peace to weave in their cottages, we may find more and more stay-at-home moms and stay-at-home dads, for that matter, busy doing customer service and data entry work from home with their computers. Fuel cells or solar power may once again make home energy production the norm, while biotechnology allows many more families to produce their own genetically modified food. But the essential basis of production will still be the biological family. And to that extent, it will still have many medieval features, including suppression of individualism, a loss of mass production efficiency, and quite likely a return to patriarchy. In his best-selling book, The Population Bomb, 
Ehrlich warned, the battle to feed all humanity is over. In the 1970s, the world will undergo famines. Hundreds of millions of people are going to starve to death in spite of any crash programs embarked upon now. Fortunately, Ehrlich's prediction proved wrong, perhaps in big heart because so many people believed it would come true. But having averted the perils of overpopulation, the world now faces the unexpected challenge of population aging and decline. We are in many ways blessed to have this problem instead of its opposite, but a problem it still is. Thank you. Thanks, Phil. It was great. I'm Kevin Kelly with the Long Nile Foundation, and I'm going to uh, moderate the questions here. Again, a reminder, if you have questions, pass your cards to the folks with the yellow hat. See, the first, and uh, if you put your name on it, that would help us identify so you can stand up and um, be credited with your question. Uh, Randy Hayes, raise your hand. There you are in the back. Okay, here's Randy's question. Um, is your thinking on population trends broadly accepted? For instance, would zero population growth call you a quack or brilliant? <laughs> uh, there's very little controversy about the general direction of fertility rates in the world. Uh, most of the numbers I gave you were from the United Nations Population Division. The U.S. Census Bureau develops international numbers that are largely uh, in line. Uh, zero population growth as an institution is not in a posture of, of denying those basic trend lines. Okay. Here's a related question from um, Brent Ross. Okay. Um, what is different about the trend extrapolations we're making today, long-term, versus those of 1969, when the population bomb was the concern? In other words... Wrong once, wrong twice. Good. Um, I wouldn't be here tonight if I didn't think it was possible to reverse this trend. I mean, if it was irresistible, then we'd just go along with it. Um, so it is possible that we will turn this around as a race. Um, but one has to dwell on all the factors that I cited that incite, incent people to uh, have fewer and fewer children and ask yourself what, will, what, what on the horizon would turn that around. Well, I, I think the question may be is you, we, you displayed some of the long-term scenarios for 2300. Why wasn't this forecasted 30 or 40 years ago, this this, this trend that we're seeing now, how come nobody saw that when they were thinking about this in the 60s? Well, or I did think, they see it I, and I hide it? I think a few people, but you, I, you know, I, I, I poke a little fun at Paul Ehrlich, but I have a lot of respect for him too. I mean, at the time, world population was exploding and had been exploding for since the 1750s with growing momentum. So uh, it's hard to live in a world like that and, and be able to see a different alternative. So the second, the follow-up question that Brent asked was, is there another scenario for 2300? In other words, if we were wrong last time about not imagining what would happen in the future in terms of population, could, we be, could you be, or the UN be wrong now in some of his assumptions about the next 100 years? Well, as I tried to get at, it, a change in world culture could very well turn these trend lines around. In other words, a fundamentalist future uh, might be a much more fertile future. Um, 
Okay. This is from um, Sandeep. Okay, there you are in the back. Um, it says, the loss in productivity due to aging population is a grave concern. Shouldn't the use of automated machines and processes offset some of that, especially because of the growing trend to use automation in the manufacture of goods? Population aging increases the imperative to increase productivity. There's no doubt about that. Um, whether we can make machines that overcome the trend, I, I'm, I'm dubious. Uh, one reason is because aging populations t tend to demand services that don't lend themselves to automation, or not much, like health care and, and nursing home care. Another reason is a bit more subtle, but there is a demonstrable demonstration or demonstrable relationship around the world between countries that have aging populations and levels of entrepreneurialism. Um, India and China are today the most entrepreneurial countries in the world and have, for now, um, comparatively very youthful populations. Um, Japan and France are the least entrepreneurial countries in the world and have very old populations. And that correlation um, just holds right across the board. So it, it kind of stands to reason is that uh, as a greater proportion of the population is advancing through middle age into old age, uh, they can't afford to take the risk with their savings, the risk with their careers that younger people can, and therefore become more risk adverse, thereby uh, slowing the pace of progress. Okay. This is a question from um, Carl Close. There you go. It's two parts. Bear with me, it's a little long. It says, I can think of two negative feedback mechanisms that would act to tame the depopulation trends. One, as wages paid to scarce labor supply increases, wage earners can afford to have more children. Mm -hmm. And two, as resources for the elderly become scarce, it becomes more apparent to young people that children become your old age insurance. Right. What do you think of those? Uh, good points. Uh, on the first one, it does seem straightforward that a shortage of young people would lead to higher wages, except that empirically, if you look around the world, uh, where populations are very old, there's typically double-digit unemployment, youth unemployment rates, thinking of Italy or Spain. Um, now, why might that be? Well, when huge resources are needed to support a big elderly population, taxes are high. That means the incentives to create jobs are low. That means while theoretically there's a lot of young people available to work, the economy doesn't produce the jobs that they need. Uh, I think so far that's been the experience of aging societies. Um, on the second point, I agree that the cultural feedback um, of today's young people watching their baby boomer parents struggle through old age, 20% uh, of the baby boomer generation has no children, uh, retirement savings are totally inadequate. Uh, the elderly may be the rock, most rapidly growing po uh, poverty group in the United States in another 20 years. And uh, it's got to, it will give a lesson to younger people. And it, if they are able to afford children, I think it will give them a good reason to want them. Question from um, Bob Spence. Okay, back there. Um, what is the world's carrying capacity for a middle-class population? And is this birth rate collapse you've been talking about on collision with this natural resource limit? 
that's a real metaphysical question. Um, I mean, are, are aging societies better or worse for the environment? Um, I think, first of all, the relationship between population and environmental um, footprint is at best tenuous, even as we are going up, um, and, which makes speculating about what its relationship going down is very difficult to answer. Um, I think it's, the carrying capacity of the Earth ultimately depends on the technologies that we use. One can imagine a, a world population of 12 billion people um, using all solar energy and um, efficient mass transit, and carrying capacity of the world would be much higher than if they conduct themselves as they do today. Um, I will say, though, that as there's fewer workers available to support each retiree, each one of those workers has to work harder and faster. And the way we'll probably get them to work harder and faster is by giving them energy-intensive machinery. Uh, and all else being equal, that would seem to uh, increase the footprint. Um, this is a, uh, a question from an anonymous person, and I'm going to uh, try and read it because I can't quite read the handwriting. It says, I am 27 and female, married less than a year. Why should I have children when I don't have a society that supports me having children and having a life role in society, job and promotion, when I cannot afford a house or access goods, when all the baby booners own everything? Hear ya, hear ya. <laughs> uh, it, it, it's a wonder that people do have children, and it's, it's, a, it's a blessing that they do. Um, all I can say is, um, based on my own personal experience and also on statistics, that um, the culture tends to vastly exaggerate how long one can put off having children. Um, Surveys show that even the majority of doctors get the point at which female fertility begins to decline. They get it wrong by about five years. Um, so we have to confront the reality that nature wants us to have children in our 20s. And for those of us who didn't, it's often too late. Question from Roger Smith. In absolute terms, isn't the planet better off environmentally with fewer number of homo sapiens on the planet and exploiting its resources? This is good news, right? All right. That's what you're telling us? Um, well, again, all else being equal. I mean, uh, an aging population is going to have a rapacious appetite for health care. It's going to have to have a bigger and bigger GDP to satisfy that, help that appetite. That appetite is essentially infinite because there's no prospect of uh, finding a cure for, for old age. Um, so I, I take the thrust of the point, but I just don't think it's, it's so straightforward. Also, we do face at least probably 2 billion more people coming onto this planet. They just happen to be old people. Okay, um, question from, it's like Ariel, I'm not sure. It says, well, let's take Sweden has a very developed system of time-sharing and baby holidays for parents. Do you know if that's had a positive effect on birth rate? Yes and no. Sweden enacted, well, they've always had a cradle-to-grave uh, welfare state, but in the 19, early 1990s, alarmed by their own prospect of population decline, they enacted a series of pronatalist measures that um, gave large uh, subsidies to families. And the immediate effect was to boost the birth rate. 
um, not to replacement levels, but close. But subsequent experiences seen Sweden's population, de- or, I'm sorry, fertility decline. Um, and in that instance, the program seems to have caused people to have their children earlier, but not to have more children. Jim Mason has a question. Somewhere back there. Um, your presentation and numbers have little consideration of significant increases in life expectancy, say, to productive years. What if in the year 2300, the life expectancy is 150 years? Might that change your projection scenarios? Um, I would think tend to make them even more dire. <laughs> of course, it depends on, on the, if you extend life, uh, how much are you extending productive life and how much are you just extending life. Um, I have to say, though, you know, we hear a lot today about how we're living in the midst of a longevity boom, and it's very misleading. Um, life expectancy here, you know, is increased by uh, 30 years in the 20th century, but that's life expectancy at birth. It's almost entirely because of the decline in infant mortality. Life expectancy at 65 is barely improving, and in fact, uh, the life tables used by the uh, Social Security Administration show that uh, for American women over 65, their life expectancy actually declined slightly in the 1990s. So we're not in the midst of a longevity boom. More people are getting to be elderly, but the elderly aren't living it substantially longer than in the past. With that comment in mind, here's, here's a question from John Ross. Um, do you think that euthanasia is a possible solution to the problem of aging societies? Ouch. <laughs> Let's not go there. Uh, <laughs> um, precisely because that is so unthinkable to me, it just emphasizes the need to promote more productive aging so that people can remain uh, useful and productive until later into life and to encourage fertility. If we fail at both, then probably the iceberg solution will be tried, at least by some cultures. Here's another question by an anonymous coward. It says... Um, one key assumption that is that fundamentalist parents have fundamentalist families. Is that really true? Um, why, aren't mar- why aren't modern societies simply use Utah as, fa- as people factories? I, I didn't get that last part. Okay, okay. Um, <laughs> I guess there's two parts to this question. One is, is it true that fundamentalist families have fundamentalist children? In other words, is, is, is that being right. uh, propagated? And then the second question seems to be, uh, why not use uh, Utah as a people factory? (laughs) Careful what you wish for. I mean, um, you know, people fall out of the church, um, but numerous studies show that, um, by and large, people adopt the religion of their parents as well as the politics of their parents, maybe not when they're 20, but by the time they're 40. Um, so, yeah, there is a general tendency for, for fundamentalists to be able to convey their uh, cultural DNA into the future. Um, you have to remember, too, this, is a, this may be a competition in which world population gets much smaller. All groups are at below replacement rates, but just some groups are a little higher than others, and those groups will be the fundamentalists, and therefore the composition of what human population there is will be increasingly fundamental. Um, you know, Utah is providing a lot of human capital. I'm okay with that. Um, 
Um, another comment from uh, Jeffrey Perone. How about more nighttime TV programs that appeal to religious fundamentalists? <laughs> Touche, man. <laughs> I mean, the big question is, you know, as somebody said the other night, uh, is the problem with TV is that it's basically taking bandwidth out of the be- out of the bedroom, and uh, I-, I think it is. I mean, whatever's on TV, the fact that it's on is the, the serious point. <laughs> uh, another another again anonymous uh, says ultrasound in China, Korea, etc., India. Um, how will the lower birth rate of girls affect the role of women? Do we know anything about that? Um. There have been other societies in history in which you've seen these kind of gender imbalances. Um, one is third century Rome. Uh, one might think that a shortage of females would put women in the, in the driver's seat, but it appears actually to be the opposite, that um, when women are scarce, um, men become much more possessive of them and therefore don't want them to go out into the marketplace <laughs> Um, and so, uh, historically, those kind of sexual imbalances have been associated with um, increased repression of women. I guess I'll ask the, the privilege of asking the last question. So, um, are you generally optimistic about uh, the fate of, of this in the next hundred years? Or do you think that um, it will take a kind of surprising turn in our culture for us to have an, uh, a viable population in another hundred years? In a hundred years? hundred years. I think the next hundred years will bring a much slower growing economy globally. Um, it will lead at a human level to many people paying very high taxes to the point of having to escape into the informal economy. Um, We will have a phenomenon in which typical person doesn't have uncles and aunts, cousins, because they're a single child um, and the son or daughter of a single child. Um, The biological links between the old and the young will become much more tenuous. Huge proportions of the elderly will have no biological link to the next generation. Um, I think that's going to make the world a much lonelier place. I think people will respond in all kinds of ways to fill up that loneliness um, through communes, through new religions, through cults. Um, There'll be a a tremendous search for meaning. Um, The biological feedback mechanism you're talking about of the younger generation experiencing uh, not only the, the sorrows of old age, but the sorrows of infertility um, uh, will no doubt respond with, with new mor- norms and mores that will increase the prestige of parenthood. Um, cultural change seems to happen faster and faster over time, and, and you know, we, we're wired now. We can communicate these things very quickly, and so I do think there's a possibility for a, a revolution in values and culture within the next 100 years that would turn this around. I find that so depressing that I'm going to ask one more question. <laughs> um, 
this is this is this is a forum about long-term thinking, and and we're trying to encourage uh, long-term responsibility. So, given what you you, you know about um, the study of, of of demographics and population, is there anything you would suggest uh, um, about us thinking about the population in the future that might help us think about it better than we have in the last thirty years? Because it seems to me that we've been caught by a big surprise. Right. So. If we don't want to be caught by a surprise in the next 30 years or 50 years, what might you suggest that, that we do or implement as a society so that we're not caught surprised? Separating it from the particular uh, scenarios that we have, but just in general about thinking about population. Well, one of the things about demographic change is it's almost always beneath the surface of events. In day-to-day life, you can be living in Italy today, a country that's on the threshold of losing a third of its population, and in your day-to-day life, all you experience is is an ever more crowded world. There's ever more traffic on the streets of Rome. There's ever more people in your face. University admission gets more competitive. If you just go from the appearances of things, it always looks like, um, or will long look like, we're living on a trend line that's actually already begun to reverse itself beneath the surface. So the important thing is not to rely on anecdote, not to rely on personal experience, but to rely on population levels uh, of analysis. Um, so also very, also very important in thinking about healthcare in an aging society is don't look at the individual treatment. You know, does it make this one person better? Look, what is the effect on the population as a whole? How much does medicine itself actually de- increase disease, uh, especially high-tech interventions? Uh, the American culture today just doesn't get that point at all. And we're on the threshold of going down a whole bioengineering, uh, very expensive role that will actually reduce the health of the population, in my opinion. Well, thank you tremendously for your insight this evening. Thanks. Thank you. This seminar about long-term thinking was brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. Thanks to Fora TV, you can see high-quality videos of the talks online by joining Long Now as a member at longnow.org. Thank you for listening. I'm Stuart Brand.